Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Today is the anniversary of Kristallnacht. Uh, growing up as not a particularly observant Jew, Holocaust awareness and education was one of the biggest ways that I connected with my Judaism. In fact, my childhood, my middle school years were connected to a lot of the anniversaries, the big, you know, 50-year anniversaries of uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and um, different things like that. And I feel like in a way there was so much education that I had nightmares and it was really so much of, you know, what I associated my Judaism with. Um, as I grew in my observance, there was still certainly, you know, education and knowledge, but I didn't focus on it as much. I think a lot of where um, my Judaism at that point came from was more about living it, um, because a lot of the stuff that I had grown up with was about all the death and the suffering, and it really is, is heavy and weighs on you a lot. Um, and then I sort of come to another stage now where I'm revisiting this information as an adult and looking at it through the eyes of a believer um, and the eyes of, you know, sort of seeing the pain, but also seeing the continuity in my own family. Um, I read Rabbi Lau's memoir a few years ago, his Holocaust memoir, which was very moving. And I recently came across a book that um, is beautiful. The author says that he's not a writer, um, and English is certainly not his first language, but it's very surprising because it's a masterfully written book. It's called A Boy from Bustina. A Son, a Survivor, a Witness by uh, Andrew Burian. And today we have his son, Lawrence Burian, with us to speak about the book. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So um, I, I have not com completely completed the book yet. It's a pretty short book, but um, there, is, there were so many times I had to put it down um, because I found that your father um, did such a great job of really bringing us into what, where he was. And even aspects of the Holocaust that I was aware of, like, for instance, when they sanitized them coming into the camp, you know, I knew that existed. I saw the scene in Schindler's List. No one ever described it before, like your father, that it was a painful process. I mean, now that I think about it, it would make sense that it would be something harsh and a chemical that would burn them. But he took, he takes the reader there with him and tells them how, you know, the eyes are burning and the ears are burning. And, you know, every time you think it can't get worse, it does get worse. But I guess what I will say, what has helped me to get through the book so far is that he's also such a hopeful person and he has such a joie de vivre. And um, so that's kind of how I've been able to get through it because I, I know that there's a, a good ending at the end. Or I can't say, you know, whatever, obviously a lot of pain, but um, tell our listeners a little bit about you know, the general overview of this book, how it came to be written. Sure. First, I just want to thank you, Allison, for, for inviting me onto your show. And I've been a, an admirer of your work, um, both uh, on the radio, but uh, the larger efforts you have to um, spread the word of um, the beauty and the meaning of, of our observance. So uh, kudos to you for all that, and, and thank you for, uh, for welcoming, me, welcoming me onto the show. In terms of the book, um, obviously I'm biased. It's my dad's book. Um, and my dad wished he could have been on, uh, on with us today. Um, but it's, um, it's a very, very powerful book. And uh, something that's, that I think is particularly special about it is my dad was 13 years old when he was taken from his home in a small village in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. Today it's, uh, it's part of the Ukraine and the Carpathian Mountains. 
but he was uh, old enough at age 13 to have very vivid uh, memories and experiences, but he's young enough, unlike uh, many of the survivors that most of us have come across, he's young enough that he can actually articulate what he saw and what he experienced and was able to put it down on paper. Um, it's a book that was many, many years in the making. Um, he actually worked on it for uh, nearly 25 years. And uh, something that resonated with me, you talked about when you were reading it, there were parts where you needed to put it down and and, and um, sort of uh, recollect yourself. Uh, the same thing happened with my dad, particularly um, he describes that every time he came to the section of the book that... Uh, described his separation from his mother at Auschwitz, uh, he just would cry and, and have to put the book down. Um, but something else he said um, about it being a helpful story, a hopeful story, I think, uh, is important to note. Um, this book does not start uh, or end with the tragedy. Um, a very significant portion, the first, I'd say, almost uh, 20%, 25% of the book, uh, describes life before the war, um, life in his in his town. And I think it gives us a connection to the past and an appreciation also for what was lost. And then he, um, in addition to describing in, in, in a lot of detail and, and in a moving way his Holocaust experience, he also describes the aftermath of the war and weaving his way uh, back to uh, starting a new life. And so it does give a... Uh, there are a lot of pieces of the book that somebody can connect to and not just focus on um, on, on the tragedy. Completely. I just want to, um, since I, I sort of pulled out some sections I wanted to read, just so people believe me when I say this is masterfully written for someone who claims in the foreword that he's not a writer um, and English is not his first language. Um, the holidays were my favorite days, and it seemed to me that we lived from one holiday to another. They measured time as they marked the seasons. Truly, the holidays were an absolute joy. The most favorite of all was Pesach, followed by Sukkot. The whole aura of the preparations for the next holiday seemed to begin at the conclusion of the previous one. Getting dressed up, going to the synagogue with my parents and my brother Tibby was a cherished occasion. As we walked up the road, uncles and cousins joined us. The synagogue was a kilometer away, situated across the street from the old Branston house in the dwarf section of town. The whole experience was an absolute delight. I love the smell of burned candles and mahogany pews. As we returned home from synagogue following the evening of prayers, I was aware of a certain special, positively charged atmosphere. Everyone was dressed in his or her best. The sky seemed to me like a canopy of stars over our heads, and the moon appeared within reach. Our entire extended family and friends were together as we left the synagogue and walked down the main road. Since we live the furthest from the synagogue, we exchanged Sabbath and holiday greetings with everyone as they turned off the road towards their homes. It's such a beautiful um, sort of image that he paints of so much extended family and friends and warmth. And, you know, what I notice is that he notices the stars in the sky when life is good. And then there's even a moment when he's in the middle of, um, you know, uh, Birkenau and he looks up and he thanks God for the beautiful sky while he's there. And like I, for me, like that was one of the moments where I had to put it down because, you know, it's so clear that we can choose how we live. How, I mean, he was literally in the depths of hell and his positive outlook on life, even if all you have above you is, you know, the beautiful sky and the fact that you're still alive and breathing um, that was really uh, that was really moving for me. Um, 
Okay, so one of the first things that he says when he says that why he feels like he needs to write the book is because of the mitzvah of Zachor. So can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what the this Zachor responsibility in the Torah is connected to his retelling of this tale? Sure. Well, <clears throat> there's a uh, there's a commandment in the in the Torah to recall, remember uh, what uh, the nation of Amalek did to the Jewish people. Um, and the, the Amaleki nation has really stood as a, a paradigm for uh, the Jewish enemies through, throughout the generations that seek to, um, to destroy us, either physically or religiously. Um, but what's interesting is what it says in the Torah is, is a horror, um, uh, what Amalek did to us, but then it also says, Lo uh, don't forget. And our and our rabbis ask, you know, why this double language, uh, to remember and not to forget? Uh, it seems redundant. And uh, what they uh, interpret and what my dad actually quotes in the book is this notion that there's a double responsibility, one to remember, but also to see to it that others do not forget. And my dad takes that very seriously, as do I, um, in the sense that, of course, he remembers. And, of course, it's incredibly difficult to um, to relive and, and convey the things that he went through. But he very much does see it as a mission um, to pass that knowledge and that education on uh, to future generations, which is really the sole purpose of the book, um, which is to be something that will survive uh, long after all of us and will be a, a living testament to what occurred and to educate people. Um, and I, I myself, together with my wife, serve on the board of directors of the American Society for Yad Vashem, uh, which, by the way, is the publisher of the book, and they did phenomenal work uh, with my dad uh, getting this book uh, published professionally. Um, but, you know, it's the mission of Yad Vashem, of course, to not just remember, but also to educate and preserve and, uh, and pass it on to generations. Beautiful. Um, one thing your father also mentions at the beginning is that this is not a Holocaust. It's six million Holocausts. And like I said earlier on, I have had a lot of Holocaust education, read a bunch, seen a bunch of movies. I never heard anyone describe it in that way. And it's... It's very true, and it seems so obvious, and yet I never heard that before. Do you remember when your father came up with this approach or started thinking like that or describing it like that? I can't, I can't pinpoint a specific time when he came up with that idea, but I, I don't think it's that novel in the sense that, um, at least in recent years, uh, people who are in... Uh, who are part of the effort to pass on Holocaust education have realized that speaking about a number like six million is it's so abstract and it's so you know enormous that people can't really get their their head around it. You know, I think there was a film paper clips that tried to bring that home to just to sort of provide people a sense of what kind of magnitude it is and um, what what museums have come across and certainly I know my dad believes this is that um, it's it's you you get more out of actually thinking about each individual. Um, our tradition teaches us that um, each person is a universe, and certainly every victim was a either a mother or a father or someone's child, someone's brother, sister, somebody's friend, and and there's a whole universe around each of those individuals, let alone all the survivors. So. Um, 
I think it's an apt um, thought. I'm not sure how novel it is, but it's but it's true. If if I can, um, uh, Allison, I do. I just want to mention something. Cause it's always interesting to me to hear which which parts of the book resonate. And you, know, you described that uh, my dad's. You read my dad's description of uh, walking home from synagogue after uh, after a holiday and. What I took from that, um, because I'm a reader of this as well, of course, is how incredibly similar uh, that description could have been to many of our lives here. And in, in, you know, I live in New Rochelle, and but in, in any sort of Jewish community uh, where we go to our shul and afterwards we have kiddush and we walk home and we wish each other good Shabbos and we you know peel off on the way to different homes and. It's uh, it does it remind me how how both special and beautiful it is, and how fragile it can be. A thousand percent, I yes. As a person that worries, seeing how because there you know it wasn't just the tradition, but they also had such a nice you know affluent life and um, privileged life and you know secure life with all the the family and friends. And I think we, I, I know at least I, you think about how stable it is and but at least how it could in a moment change um another story that struck me at the beginning of the book and i'm not sure if i read too much into it because if it was a novelist and fiction i might have thought that it was being set up like this but this was his actual um you know real life event there's a story about honey cake crumbs and over uh, as told by his great grandfather and also something else that i'm just amazed by you know, my husband's not even sure, like, who his cousin is, and he has, like, two of them. No, he knows his cousin are. But um, just your father's knowledge of his extended family is also just so um, impressive, you know, in terms of his memory. But then also, I think it just shows um, how important family is to him. Um, but if you could share with our, our listeners about the, the honey crumb story, honey cake crumbs. Sure. It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. Uh, this story in particular, um, a, uh, an extended cousin of my dad's wrote a, a book about life in the, in the village of Bistano, um, and this story was in there. And so this is a, a chapter, one, uh, one, it's not even, it's a portion of a chapter of the book that is uh, somewhat excerpted with credit to his cousin. Um, but it tells the story, actually, of how my father's uh, on, the, on, on his maternal side, how his family got their their family name, which was Brookstein, which means broken stone. Uh, essentially, the town of Bustino uh, was somewhat famous in in the region because of a a great Hasidic rebbe um, uh, named Rav Mordechai of Nedverna, who um, uh, wound up settling in Bustino. And he there are many Hasidic tales about uh, Rav Mordechai. In fact. My father's father is named Mordechai after this Rev Mordechai. Um, and, excuse me, this Rebbe, one Friday evening, was having a tish for your, for the readers, for your listeners who are not familiar with it. It's a, it's after dinner where the rabbi has his community surrounding him, typically in his home, and there's singing and there's eating and there's, uh, words of Torah. And my father's great-grandmother had baked a honey cake uh, for the occasion, and uh, the grand rabbi of Mordechai took a, a bite of the honey cake, a slice of it. And then, as is the tradition among Hasidim, 
uh, he then passed around uh, the leftovers of the cake so that everybody could take uh, a bite of a uh, piece of this cake and, and share from the rabbi's table. Uh, by the time it got to my father's great-grandfather, um, Moshe, who my dad is ultimately named for, um, uh, there were only crumbs left. And uh, the, the Rebbe, seeing the consternation on, on Moshe's face, said, Oh, don't worry. Uh, even Moshe, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, benefited from the crumbs, the, the fragments of the uh, shattered luchot, uh, of the shattered um, you know, Ten Commandments, um, the first time the stones were broken. Uh, so he gave us word of encouragement that even even the crumbs have value. Um, and in the way he said it, it, it really resonated in Moshe's mind. Uh, at the time, Moshe was a bookkeeper for a timber concern. Um, uh, in the Carpathian Mountains, there was a lot of uh, timber work and uh, lumber businesses, and he used to go into the forest and have to take inventory of numbers of felled trees and, and stumps and this and that. And while he was uh, sitting, having lunch, sitting on a, on a, on a log, uh, eating his wife's uh, uh, sandwich and crumbs, the, the recollection of the Rebbe's words came to him, and he noticed that on the floor of the forest were the broken limbs and, and, and branches that were not being used anymore. They are sort of left to rot on the forest floor. And to make a long story short, it hit upon him that this uh, leftover wood uh, could be used for what was then an emerging and highly uh, stylish uh, and trendy cane business where, you know, gentlemen of, of that age uh, would have walking canes that were beautifully polished and, and capped. And uh, so to make the long story short, um, he founded a business and became extremely successful and wealthy uh, in this business using the, the crumbs from the forest for and uh, when ultimately um, the, the government authorities required folks to pick a last name, he named himself Brookstein, uh, to, or Brookstein, to be broken stone, uh, to, to, to uh, commemorate what the Rebbe had told him about the broken stone that Moses benefited from. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful story, um, uh, and it's true. I love it because, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, you know, seizing an opportunity, seeing something that other people have overlooked and going with it. And then and then your family's um, wealth seems to have been based in the timber and uh, cane business, right? Like when your uh, father grew up, the the extensive family that was there was mostly in this type of business based on the great-grandfather or married into it as well or... Well, it's a combination. So on his mother's side, this great-grandfather um, had the cane business, and he would travel all around Europe and was a real business person. Uh, his grandfather had a significant lumber business with um, you know, substantial land holdings in the area. Uh, on his father's side, they were more the general store, the core sort of uh, trading, uh, trading outpost. I don't know what you would call it, but general store. Uh, also successful, but you know, they weren't wealthy in the way you know with that you would think of in terms of cash uh, it was more uh, land holdings and 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 the like um, of course all of that was that was ultimately lost uh, in the war and now this was my reading into it and I'm not sure if your father intended this or or I'm not sure if it's obvious or it's uh, stretched but 
did he put this here, the story here, that he took the crumbs of the life that was left after the Shoah and saw that he could rebuild something? Do you think that's connected to what his vision of rebuilding or why he placed that in the book? That's such an interesting idea. I, um, I'd have to ask my dad. I, I don't think it would be fair to say that it was a motivating factor for his life because I'm not sure he himself knew this story until years later um, from his cousin. So I, I wouldn't go as far as to say this was a inspiration for him building his life back. Uh, whether or not he saw in himself um, some connection, uh, maybe, um, but I don't know. I would, so even if we didn't know the story explicitly, I guess I would say, you know, he still seems to come from the, the hopeful crop and the, you know, the type of person that's going to persevere and, you know, no matter what life throws at you, find a way to, to emerge um, in, a, in a positive way. Um, we are uh, about two-thirds done now, so I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you still. Um, and one of the things, because he, so we mentioned, you mentioned earlier that his mother was uh, taken from him in Auschwitz and, and uh, or Birkenau and, and uh, passed away there. I guess Auschwitz-Birkenau is connected. Um, he got separated from his father and his only brother as well, and his father gave him three pieces of advice. If you could share that with us, and if you've ever thought about why these three things, um, you know, the parting words that his father left him with. Yeah, they, they, they were very powerful to him. Um, uh, his his father, when they were being separated, said to him uh, that he, as he said, had three, three things he wanted to impart. Um, and one was uh, basically to stay clean. Uh, I think that was a piece of practical advice. But number two was, um, of course, this was in Yiddish, but not to uh, to be a mensch and not to let them make an animal out of you. Um, and the third was everyone or anyone who survives this uh, returns home. Uh, and, um, you know, I, w- I will tell you that um, a theme throughout the book is this notion of um, what would my dad say? Um, would he be proud of me? And this mission to return home. Uh, there are times uh, when he describes uh, just the you mentioned perseverance and the in the will to live. And in many ways, it was my dad told me I have to meet at home. Uh, how could I not follow his instruction? I have to survive. I have to come home. And and I do think in in that regard. His return to uh, more sustained orthodoxy after the war, obviously um, during the war, to, to to you know to maintain observance wasn't realistic. But after the war, his recommitment to observance, very much I think for him was a notion of uh, returning home uh, and rebuilding the life that he had. Um, you can't judge or blame anyone who came to a different conclusion who was a survivor, but for my dad, uh, very much um, that was about returning home. I, I do want to just mention, um, you know, we haven't really given the broad strokes of the story, but this is a this is a book that is told very much um, without being pedantic. He's not preaching to you. When you read this book, it's very much um, matter of fact. This is what happened to me, and I think that's part of the power and the charm of it. That there's no there's no agenda, but emerging from it as you read it, 
Um, there are so many life lessons that mm-hmm. one can learn that I believe is, uh, you know, these are universal lessons about um, family and, and bravery and survival and faith and, mm-hmm. you know, what the body uh, can endure when, when, when the mind has a, a mission and a goal. And, uh, in fact, it's also a story of the American dream in terms of what a immigrant and survivor can achieve um, uh, in this great country of the United States. Uh, it's a story of the Jewish people, um, both our past and, and our future. It's really a very powerful book. So in terms of the three things, I think my reading of it was, when you stay clean, you keep your physical being safe, and you first have to survive. Pikuach nefesh, that's number one. Number two, you know, be a mensch. That speaks to how you interrelate. Ben Adam with, you know, your fellow man and sort of the foundation of being an observant Jew. And then I hadn't thought about that return home, but as you were saying it, yes, come back to our tradition. So I love that. And a couple of things that I pointed out. I think out that is so right. I think that is so right. Um, you're actually giving me chills because, you know, when you're so close to it, as a child, you know, this is a little bit of my own, um, you know, any, any child of a survivor will tell you that there are things in their own home that, uh, you know, um, affected them through their, their survival parent. But, you know, my dad used to, at the end of letters to me in summer camp, he used to write to me, stay clean, you know, <laughs> be a mensch, um, uh, you know, write home. It's, it's, the way you framed it is really beautiful, and I think it's right. I think it's I think it's I think it's correct that one is your physical safety, one is your interpersonal, and, and how you carry yourself, and one is you know it's family and spirituality and, and what it means to come home. And I think that that's that's very true. I, I had my eye out since I didn't finish it for the come home part, but I saw I actually skipped to the end. I needed to take a break in some of the harder stuff, but in in the midst of um, the camps, I looked for the Bemensch, and I saw. When your father's family came off the cattle carts, the crazy people told them, you know, you're going to the ovens, you know, look at that smoke, you're going to be there. And your father, in turn, when he was set to clean out the cattle cars, he knew he wasn't allowed to speak, but he couldn't handle not speaking to the people that were so worried. And instead of, you know, enjoying the perverse pleasure of, you know, sort of bringing that torture on to the next group like the people had done to him, he said, he answered, and he said, you're in Auschwitz-Birkenau, I answered in Yiddish, with God's help it will be good. And just, you know, to even give like a moment of hope or positivity to people that are terrorized and terrified was huge. And the other point I wanted to say, and we are running out of time now, um, he was this little kid, this scrawny kid, a frog, his mother called him, and people stole food from him. And he speaks about how when he worked in the women's camp, he figured out how close that he could get. And he, whenever he could manage on several occasions, I would throw food or other objects over the barbed wire to women on the other side. I felt they needed it more than I did. Years after the war, a woman approached my wife at an event and gushed about the fact that I had thrown her a makeshift spoon that I had whittled using a stick and a rock. So again, he's finding ways to give to others. Isn't that incredible, by the way, that some woman recognized him all those years later in the United States that he had thrown that to her? But... You're right. Um, I'm very, very proud of my dad. But I will also tell you that he he doesn't even pull punches there. He's very honest with the things that he did. Some are, are hard to read as a, as a, as a son. Are the things that he's not as proud of today. Um, but he, 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 he gives it. It's a very honest, honest book. And I, and I do think that um, 
that uh, he lived up to what his what his dad instructed him to do. Um, I think it's just for for the reader who just if if, if you're, you're the listener, I keep saying reader, but uh, something that's also really special about the book is that it really encompasses so many different aspects of the Shoah, the survival experience, because you have stories of pre-war, you have his experience in ghetto, you have the cattle cars to Auschwitz-Birkenau, you have Servusch's-Birkenau, you have a death march evacuation, you have uh, then on to Mauthausen in, in Austria, you have another death march to Gunskirchen, you have there's just so many different aspects and uh, they're really so I think a person can get a really um, uh, good sense of many different aspects of the Shoah um, from reading the book. And in our last uh, closing couple minutes, um, I feel like this is sort of the, the final piece, you know, being raised by a survivor. There's all sorts of different things. I mean, sometimes horrible things are given over people that never quite um, recovered. Um, and I have heard hard stories, and I look at you and your family and thank God so much success and so much positivity. Um, in how you approach your Judaism. Can you tell, share us with some closing words how your father's approach to Torah and mitzvot impacted you and how you see them? Yeah, um, look, uh, you know, it's, you're asking a religious question, so I'll give you a religious answer. I, you know, I do feel very, very blessed and very lucky uh, uh, to exist, <laughs> to, to, you know, I, I, I realize how... Um, how tenuous my dad's survival was. Um, I feel very much, I have this conversation with my children all the time, I feel very much uh, responsible, and my dad um, and my mother uh, put this, uh, educated us this way, but that we are the next link in a precious chain that goes all the way back, and that... um, uh, there's just no way, and I say this to my kids, there's just no way I'm letting us be the break in that chain. Um, and, um, you know, there are many different um, uh, ways to, to come to belief in God. Uh, there's a great book called Permission to Believe. I forget the name of the author that goes through different ways of approaching belief in God, and one of them is the incredible survival of the Jewish people. And I feel that every day. Um, uh you know, somebody once asked my dad um, how he could still believe and, and be observant after going through what he went through, and he gave this incredible answer. Um, he said, some people are observant because they're afraid of going to hell. Um, he said, I'm not afraid of going to hell. In fact, I've been there. I've been there several times. He said, I, I, I observe because it's the best way to live. And my dad genuinely believes that, and, and both my parents have passed that on to us, a, a sense of privilege to live the lives that we live and to have the beautiful um, uh, communities and observance that we have. And in many ways, as, I, as we said at the beginning of the, of the talk, um, what he described uh, pre-war is what we have today um, when we go to shul and we are with our fa- fa- friends and family around the Shabbat table. And uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful way to live. Um, okay, so, thank you so much. I'm afraid that we're out of time. I feel like we could go on and talk about this more and more, but our listeners can uh, buy this book on Amazon, and it is, okay, I pronounced the name wrong. It's spelled like a boy from Bustina, but the real way to pronounce the city is? How long? Uh, I think it's a boy from Bustina. Bustina, okay, fine. Uh, spell it B-U-S-T-I-N-A. 
Bushina. Okay, thank Bushina, you so much. Bushina, just, just, just note that it's all the proceeds go to Yad Vashem. Okay, excellent, amazing. All right, thank you so much for listening today, and you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.